0: Welcome to this episode of Melinary.info. Today, our discussion is with Bronwyn Shooks, a theatrical milliner based in Sydney, who is also the winner of the Master Millinery section at the Royal Melbourne Show in 2017. So thank you for joining me today, Bronwyn, to talk about hats. Um, You were the winner of the Master Millinery Section at the Royal Melbourne Show. I was just wondering if we could start by you telling us about that piece and how it came about.
1: Yeah, I was hugely honoured to be invited to be a part of that section. Um, So I felt like I couldn't be rude and not do it because I was really busy, that I had to acknowledge the fact that I had been invited and it was a pretty prestigious little section that not everyone gets to enter um, so i just agonized over what i was going to make because i don't um i don't get to design my stuff very often um, so i just kind of came up with this idea i had a few things that inspired it um, one of them was the millinery work of elsa scaparelli Um, there's a quite famous image of a woman in this beautiful tricorn style hat with a face veil. Um, And I had made something similar many years earlier for an exhibition and it was also drew inspiration from that piece. So I thought, well, maybe I could rework that. And I had on My Fair Lady and I got to sort of bust out my straw braid skills. So I thought, well, I want to do that. They were skills that Jean taught to me, so it's a nice homage. So, I, the other end was this sort of strawberry homage to Scapparelli and Jean Carroll. And yeah, I, I also set the limits of not being able to buy anything new to do it. So, have. you mentioned Jean Carroll in that, and I understand that you were a student of hers. How did you
0: first become interested in millinery, and where did you learn from?
1: I have always been a sewer. And I have always did textiles at school and I was always making something at home um, and ended up doing a theatre degree um, in theatre production, so all the sort of backstage technical areas of theatre and costume was a part of that. Um, When I finished uni and moved to Sydney, my first job that I got was in a costume hire shop called Fancy That um, and it was run by two women who... Uh, were quite involved in the costume industry. Um, They had made the costumes for a show called It's a Knockout and when that show wrapped, they bought the costumes and opened the hire shop. Um, So quite early on, I was surrounded by these amazing makers. One of the owners was Liz Keogh, who is a costume designer. When I first started working there, she was working on Dark City. So I kind of got glimpses into this amazing world of super talented people um while i was at the shop i sort of decided that i wanted to specialize and decided on millinery Um, i feel like in a lot of ways it chose me i'm not quite sure why but i just kind of went with it um i so i started trying to do millinery courses to learn more about millinery because I had made a hat at uni for one of the shows that we did, but I wouldn't really, there was not much skill involved. It was sort of just putting elements together. Um, so I enrolled in uh, at TAFE in Hornsby into their, I think it was a certificate two course, I'm not sure. Um, and I was lucky enough to enroll the year they decided to cancel the course, so that didn't go ahead. Um, then I enrolled in a, a couple of other short courses, and for one reason or another, they both fell through as well. So I was sort of thinking, maybe this is not what I should be doing. maybe I need to head in a different direction. Um, but one of the girls that I had worked with in the shop was studying costume at NIDA, and she told me about this this woman who taught casual classes in millinery on a Saturday morning and I was like yeah okay that might be the way to go I finally managed to get into some courses at what was then SA Brown Um, and one of them was run by Jean Carroll so I kind of cornered her after the class and said I believe you teach classes can I come and learn and she said oh no no I'm very busy at the moment I'm doing a big opera job call me back in three months. So I feel like in retrospect, that was her trying to just either test whether I was serious or just not, can't deal with you. (laughs) I'll just see if you go away. Um, So I did, I rang her three months later and she, I'm pretty sure she had no idea what I was talking about or who I was, but she agreed to take me on in one of her Saturday classes so there were three of us I think at the time who would turn up and you know we'd be there for four hours and she would teach us what we wanted to learn and I think it cost us $20 a lesson or something crazy Um, and after a little while we ended up helping her with whatever jobs she was doing at the time. Um, One of the things we helped her out with was the she got some pieces for the opening ceremony of the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Mm-hmm. So we were doing sort of stuff like that. And then she would pay us $20 to work for, her <laughs> for <laughs> a couple of went. hours on a Saturday. And it was like, oh, it was amazing. Um, so, I did that for about eighteen months and was getting so frustrated because it just wasn't enough. I mean you know I was really interested and wanted to learn as much as I possibly could um, so because Jean was actually in her late seventies when I first met her, um, firstly, I was incredibly lucky that she loved working so much that she it hadn't occurred to her to retire um, it you know it could have been that terrible situation where I just missed her altogether and never got to meet her because she was doing what late 70-year-olds do and just, you know, enjoying her life. Um, She was enjoying her life. She was doing the job that she just, you know, couldn't imagine not doing. I kind of got this idea that I could maybe work with her, but I didn't want to put it on her and have her pay me as an apprentice because that was a bit much to ask of her so it was really important to me to be self-funded so I actually applied for a professional development grant from the Australia Council for the Arts and as it turns out I I got it I was one of three people accepted that year which was amazing and I got the biggest single grant also which was just incredible I you know I'll never forget opening the letter because in those days you got sent a piece of paper saying, (laughs) yes, you've been accepted. Um, And so that was incredible. So that let me work with her in her workroom for 12 months. Mm -hmm. Um, I still kept my Saturday job in the costume hire shop because I had to explain to the Australia Council how I was going to contribute to that grant year. Um, so I got to help her on the jobs that she was doing so we did a couple of amazing things we did La Boheme on Broadway for Baz Luhrmann we didn't get to go over we just made the hats and they got sent over Um, there was another uh, Sweeney Todd for um, an opera company in Chicago so we were sort of doing these incredible like it was blowing my mind that I was allowed to just go and play all day I I had this really strong sense that I was going to get busted and someone was going to come and say, no, no, (laughs) you (laughs) need to give that money back. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, But I got over that eventually. So, yeah, I did all of that. In between times when things were quiet, I kind of set my own projects and Eugene would sort of walk me through them. But it also meant that I assisted her with her classes at TAFE at at night. She was teaching theatre millinery and then she would have the NIDA students come in and I would help her with that as well. So it was more than just a nine to five. It was do all of the things and just get as much experience as possible. And so at the end of that year, I think she really noticed the difference in how much work she could get done. Um, She could take on bigger jobs more confidently, not being the only one there to have to sort of push through all the work on her own, so she actually asked me to stay on, and she did start paying me as an apprentice so yeah she she liked me, which was amazing um, so I ended up working with her for twelve years, which she was eighty nine when she retired, which wow. was quite incredible, so she actually worked for 75 years because she started her apprenticeship at 13 and nine months, I think. Um, so yeah, an incredible milestone for her and an incredible honor for me to be given the opportunity to take over the running of her business. Um, so she, she passed it over to me, which was, yeah, massive shoes to fill, but a really incredible opportunity. And, I, I'm i always mindful to remember just how lucky I was because so many people would have just killed to get that opportunity. Um, then again, I did work very, very hard to kind of make it happen. But, but yeah, I'm so grateful that I had that training and I had that time with her. It was pretty amazing. And to learn from somebody as well who just loved their work so much, Like, that's pretty incredible to learn from somebody with that kind of passion. So, yeah.
0: And how has it changed for you now that you are more in, not in control, but now the (laughs) business is yours? And um, has the work transitioned at all within what you do?
1: I can sort of afford to take on bigger jobs, I guess, because being a bit younger, it's a little bit easier for me. Because I'm single and I don't have a family, I can take on the jobs where you end up working late into the night and through the weekend and whatever else is needed to do to get the job out the door. Not that that's ideal all the time, but I don't know. I think the nature of work is changing a little bit as well. I, when I started with Jean, we were doing mostly theatre. And when I started sort of going out on my own as well, it was mostly theatre work. So I've since done a few films and I do a lot more TV work as well, which is great. It always seems to be quite last minute and very tight turnaround. So I don't know that the stress would be for everyone. Um, it's not always for me all the time either. <laughs> But it, it's incredibly rewarding to see, it's incredibly terrifying to see your stuff on screen <laughs> when you have worked so hard and I'm part of a bigger team. It's not just me, it's, it's the costume designer, it's the costume cutters, everybody sort of works together to try and make that person look as best they can on screen. So, it's, yeah, it's quite exciting to see it all come together and quite often I won't have seen the full outfit either so it's nice to see my work in context. It's also it's easier for me to do jobs at a greater distance because the online world just didn't exist when I started. It may have been sort of in its infancy but I think the speed of work has has increased because I can just snap a photo of my work and email it through or text it through to a designer and they'll give me feedback straight away. So there's, there's not that sort of time delay, but it also means that I have to condense my working time as well because there's, there's a higher expectation that you'll get through the stuff. So when you
0: are working with the designers because your focus is on theatre and television, how does that process work for
1: you? It can be quite different depending on who I'm working with. There are probably two big differences. Um, Firstly, I can be doing work on a big show like A Lion King or Matilda. Um, I did some work for Les Miserables in Mexico earlier this year And we tend to, I tend to not deal with the actual costume designer because once they've done the initial run, they will hand over to a design associate. And so that's my contact person. It's very important that we get all of the detail as close as possible to the original. Um, so that when you see a production in Australia or in London or New York or wherever it is in the world, it should look the same. So there's a special skill, I guess, in being able to reproduce so that it doesn't look vastly different across the world. Whereas with sort of film and TV, I will sit down with the designer. I guess because we're not making multiples as well, the process can change really quickly when you're working on a single piece, the design can change between start and finish almost completely. And it's just a thing that evolves. Some designers have got a really very clear idea of what they want um, and will tell me down to the smallest detail. And that's amazing because then I don't have to do as much figuring out or I can kind of plot out what I'm doing from start to finish. Um, Whereas other designers they may be really busy because they're shooting a massive crowd scene and they've actually got 50 people to consider and I'm just focused on one of those 50 people. Sometimes I'll get sort of the broad strokes of the design and it's up to me to sort of fill in the detail as best I can. So I have to be really careful to listen to the information that's given to me and the little sort of details that may count for, for something that may inform the trim that I put on the hat or, you know, the sort of fabrics that go into it. Um, my first experience with that was sort of on Underbelly Razor, where I worked with a designer called Louise Wakefield. And that was an incredible experience. That was sort of my first TV job plus she was one of those designers that kind of gives you broad strokes. So we sat down and talked about each of the characters and what what the shapes should be, you know, what kind of brim styles, all that sort of thing. So we sort of established the outline of the characters and then what she would do was put together what she called show bags for me. (laughs) So she would sort of put a felt, put trims, ribbons, flowers, whatever it was, sometimes fabric from the dresses into the bag, send it off to me. And she had complete trust that whatever I felt was right, I could use on that hat, you know, sort of from the collection of stuff that she sent me. So that was a really good job to sort of really push me out of my comfort zone because I'm not a designer, I'm a maker. So it was exciting but sort of terrifying because what you've put together and Designed Yourself is going to be on TV forevermore. It's not like theatre where it will disappear in a little while and it's just in people's memories. You can actually go back at any time and watch that and it's all there exactly as it was. So that was, yeah, it was good because, as I said, it really pushed me out of my comfort zone and it was nice having a bit of free reign and being able to sort of apply little techniques that I'd learnt, And I'm like, yep, I can do it for that. And also the show, I just did so many, I think I did about 60 pieces all up and each one had to be different. So Mm -hmm. it was set in the twenties, which was great because that's a really great period for trims and shapes and once you think you've run out of all of the techniques that you know you are forced to invent new ones and new styles which it's amazing what you can do when you sort of put under the pump like that you just things start coming out of your hands and you're like this is great okay we'll just keep going and we'll refine that a bit further and okay what if I do that so yeah I don't often get to do that but when I do it It's quite good. I mean, again, with Louise, we kind of developed this amazing shorthand between us, and I find any time I work with her now, um, it's great because we've kind of got the same ideas in our minds and we'll sort of send each other reference material and it will be very similar because we're just sort of on the same wavelength, which is pretty rare, but it's really nice to sort of, to know that in your gut you know that you're heading in the right direction there's sort of no no wondering oh do I need to get this checked but I should say most designers I work with are really fantastic and you know they've got a very clear just clear idea of what it is that they want that is their job but occasionally you'll get a designer that just doesn't know and they don't know until they see your work that they don't like it and then they don't really know what it is that has to change but something so it, it can be a bit of a, a struggle to get to to the end point but yeah thankfully that is not very often at all and
0: when you're ex- looking for those reference images where are you going to source those or is it generally they'll send you a bundle oh, or how does that exchange happen
1: they they will do a, a design drawing or a costume rendering in whatever style they work with and they will collect a lot of research images as well. And so sometimes it's a drawing that I work from, sometimes it's a series of images. Depending on the period, it can be vastly different. I did a film job last year, which was set in 1825, and the designer had done all this incredible research into the period. Sometimes it's just a hint that's in a a paragraph of text next to a picture and you can sort of draw a bit more information out of that. But, yeah, the more period it is, the more detail you tend to get given because the designer has had to go and do um, a whole lot more work and research. It's, yeah, it's quite different to working on a contemporary job where sort of we've all got the knowledge because we sort of see it and know it. But for period stuff, you've really got to go back and immerse yourself in that time. I often do a lot of research as well myself, just so I know that what I'm doing is right in the pocket of what's needed. And it's, uh, that's something that I try and make clear to my, my younger students now, is just to be very careful with their research. Pinterest is this incredible gift, but it's this massive trap as well if you don't buy an original piece from a modern reproduction that somebody's selling on Etsy with very modern-looking details in it. Yeah, I've only noticed that lately, so I don't know if it's just because I'm that much older now than they are and I've sort of, or whether it's just because they've got all this digital information around them all the time, Um, so they just don't know the difference it's it's an interesting thing but it's something i'm very careful to point out because etsy sellers are not necessarily a good source of period detail i don't want to knock etsy sellers at all but yeah there are certain people who really like a period and but can't necessarily tell that what they're doing is correct for that period or not
0: it's more interpretation rather than a replication
1: And it's just, I guess, that knowledge of periods and what existed in that period and what didn't exist in that period. You know, again, for the film that I did last year, all of my outside finishing had to be done by hand because it was pre-industrial revolution. And so machine stitching wasn't a thing. So, yeah, I don't often get to do that kind of detail either, but it is really lovely when you do get landed with that sort of job. And you can get down to that kind of detail and particularly for film because it's potentially going to be blown up to a massive size in front of people. So if there are any faults in it, they will jump out.
0: And in terms of the designers you're working with, is there a particular pool that you're always working from or are they approaching you? Or how does that process work when you're engaging first with a designer?
1: It happens in a lot of different ways. Sometimes... It's the designer that I've sort of built up a working relationship with. So I've got a couple who I have worked with repeatedly, which is really lovely. It's a great compliment that they want me to work with them again. Other times I will be approached by the costume supervisor who is putting together a team. So for theatre, it's not so much the designer. They don't know me. They may never know me. But it's the supervisor who I've developed a relationship with who sees if I'm available for the job. What I do is mostly word of mouth. Sometimes I'll work with somebody new, which is a really great opportunity to sort of get my work in front of them and hopefully get some repeat orders from them. But sometimes it can be sort of months or years in between jobs for them also. So you have to not take it too personally when they rave about your work but then you don't hear from them for two years. <laughs> That's just the nature of, of the industry, I think. And there's not always work all the time for all of the people. I work really hard just to develop really good relationships and I also make sure that I'm putting my best work forward every single time. I, for me, it's really important that my work speaks for itself I don't feel I should be convincing somebody to employ me for a job. I think it's much better if they've seen my work and they're like, yep, we want her to do it. And that has worked really well for me so far. So touch wood, that keeps working. But I really pride myself on the quality of work that I do and I work very hard to make sure the best that I can be doing at the time. And how is your role? at You're teaching at NIDA, is that correct? I teach the first-year costume students at NIDA. Um, So they come to me and do a half day um, every week or so in my workroom. Um, And I also teach Certificate Three Millinery at Ultimo TAFE. And next semester I'll also be picking up my uh, theatre millinery class for the costume course at TAFE as well. So I teach all of the people... (laughs) It's important for me to teach because it's part of just juggling the workflow because sometimes I'm mega busy and I just have to make the teaching work. But when it's quiet in the industry, it's deadly quiet and you can go, you know, for three months with no work. So that's when I can fall back on my teaching and I know that I've got some money coming in. It's incredibly rewarding in its own right. I really love getting new students and just giving them the best start that I can so that they've got really good, solid skills to fall back on. It's amazing just to see them progress and see just the change from the start of the year to the end of the year, what they're then producing. And what is your workspace like? Um, It's quite tiny. (laughs) It's not um, this big, luxurious space, but... So when my NIDA students come in, I have six students and they we just fit around my table and that's about it. I've got a little bit of storage space. It's pretty cosy. Um, I sublet space from Sydney Costume Workshop. I've actually got a little corner of a bigger warehouse which works quite well because I'm not sort of stuck on my own somewhere but I have a, a separate defined space so that when I have clients I'm not interrupting you know, the bigger workroom and what they're doing. I don't really have a view. There's no windows. We've got skylights (laughs) in the warehouse. So, you know, I dream of a workroom with a window I can look out (laughs) on. Who knows? But then again, maybe I wouldn't get as much work done because I'd get distracted. So, (laughs) But it's a really great space and um, it's nice being in with other people.
0: With the unpredictability of what period you might be working on next, do you have like a large array of blocks you work on to rely on shapes or how do you go about constructing those shapes if something comes up?
1: I just get really creative. <laughs> I, I've got a reasonable collection of blocks. It's not as big as some people would think because I inherited Jean's block collection. I have added quite a bit to it. I don't really think that you need a massive collection of all of the different shapes. You just have to be smart about the blocks you have and how you use them. I got asked to make an alien head for a TV show and so (laughs) I actually managed to block all of the pieces for it off the one block. It's amazing what you can come up with when you, again, are under the palm. Mostly I wouldn't have time to get a block made anyway. You, you just make it work. It's, yeah, it's amazing what you can come up with when you really, really have to. <laughs> I'd love a bigger block collection. I would love to have all of the blocks in the world. But
0: And when you are adding to your collection of blocks, what are you looking for in the block?
1: I really love blocks from sort of the 20s and 30s. Normally a block will just come up somehow. Somebody I know will be trying to sell some blocks or I'll see something online. I try not to look online too often. Um, (laughs) I'm drawn more to vintage blocks that that really are now kind of one-offs. They're not sort of being mass-produced.
0: What are some of the favourite techniques that you get to
1: use? I, I don't... I think I really have a favourite technique. I think my favourite technique is the one that works on the day for the job that I'm doing (laughs) because I literally can get asked to do anything, for example, make an alien head. I just sort of have to have everything up my sleeve, ready to go.
0: And for someone who's maybe learning millinery or interested in theatre millinery, what's one of the best handy hints you have or have had shared with you?
1: Best hint or bit of advice would be something that Jean used to say to me quite a lot, which is a bad start means a good finish. I think it's a really amazing way to reframe what's going on in your day because we all have the jobs where we're just struggling, things are not working and you just, it can really drag you down. I just try and remind myself you know Jean always used to say "A bad start means a good finish, which means it can turn around. it doesn't have to ruin the whole job. things will get better quite often they do so
0: and if you're allowed to share with us, what can we look forward to seeing some of your pieces in soon?
1: I made a bit of a list because I have to be really careful. I can't always talk about what I'm working on, which <laughs> is really frustrating, so I've sort of got this bank of stuff that I've worked on previously, which I still haven 't been able to share, but then once it goes public, I can start to share it. Mum and me is on stage at the moment in perth then it 's going to Melbourne and then Adelaide. so I did some work on that a little while ago, most recently been making some pieces for a place to call home for season six, which is their final season, which is quite sad because it 's such a beautiful period that show and I don't make all of the hats for the show. I just get to do select pieces, but it's just always really beautiful stuff. And Lisa Mara is another really great designer that I've been lucky enough to work with. A film that I worked on, which will hopefully come out last, I think it's The Nightingale. That was the working title, so hopefully that's the actual title <laughs> of the film as well. But that was another beautiful designer, Margot Wilson, who... I thoroughly enjoy working with, and it was directed by Jennifer Kent. Who her first film was *The Babadook*. Expecting great things from *The Nightingale*, and I'm I'm really excited to actually finally see that one as well. And I've just signed a non-disclosure agreement for a job later in the year, and that's all I can tell you about that. One. Sh- on that one, <laughs> so yeah, I can't even tell you what it is. It can be quite exciting, and you want to tell people. and It's like, but my February
0: would rewarding when you get to see it on screen at the end even if it's years later it actually releases
1: it is quite funny the first film I did was the water diviners the Russell Crowe one that was set in Gallipoli and I made all the, the Turkish army helmets for it and it was on TV recently and I was sort of sitting there watching it looking at the helmets I had to sort of remind myself that I made them it's a great buzz to just go yeah I did that Well, thank you so
0: much for talking hats with me today and good luck on your upcoming project. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed our talk with Bronwyn. We'd like to thank our supporters of the podcast, Catherine Ellen from The Essential Hat and Louise of Louise MacDonald Milliner. If you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, check out our Patreon link to find out more. If you've enjoyed today, how about sharing a link to the podcast with another hat-loving friend? We enjoy bringing you these discussions on hats, and the more people who know about it, the better. So thanks for listening, and we look forward to bringing you another podcast soon.